Thank you for listening to Soho Bites, the only podcast in the world, as far as we're aware, dedicated to talking about films set in Soho, the beating heart of bohemian cosmopolitan London. If you would like to support the show, you can do this in the form of a star rating or review at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review. Or if you'd like to put a small amount of money where your mouth is, you can do that at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Donations can be from as little as £3, which will buy at London prices about half a drink for one of our thirsty guests. You may hear some different URLs in the upcoming episode, but by far the easiest way is to follow one of those links. They are again SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review and SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you for your continued support and enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to episode 14 of Soho Bites. Soho Bites is the podcast in which we talk to people who love Soho and people who love film. My name is Dominic Delaghi and did you know Soho Bites has spawned an offspring? It's a weekly series of short features and each week I'll chat to an interesting person about a historical figure who appears in the spirit of Soho Mural just off Carnaby Street. At the time of recording, the next episode will be episode four and features a conversation with the cartoonist Michael Heath about his friend Jeffrey Bernard. You can find all the episodes at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash Mural Morsels. Morsels, because it's like a small bite. It's like Soho Bite. It's supposed to be a clever play on words, but I don't think it really works. This is the second part of our three-part special all about the famous Windmill Theatre. In the last episode, we heard from former Windmill Girl Jill Millard Shapiro about the early days of the mill and about how it got through the Second World War, slightly wounded, but with its reputation not only intact, but enhanced. In a couple of minutes, we'll be hearing from Jill again. This time, she's talking about her time as a Windmill Girl and about how she got her big break. After that, in time-honoured fashion, it's film chat as usual. For this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Ellen Wright, Senior Lecturer in Film and TV History at De Montfort University to talk about a 1949 comic musical murder mystery called Murder at the Windmill, which is about a murder which takes place at the windmill. Or is it? Find out in the second half of the show. So if you haven't heard the last episode of the show, I would urge you to go back and listen to that first because it contains the first third of my conversation with Jill Millard Shapiro about the early days of the Windmill Theatre, roughly the first half of its life. You can find it at SohoBitesPodcast.com. To begin this second part of the interview, I asked her about some of the household names who had appeared at the theatre over the years. The famous comedians who started out there. Oh, gosh, all of them. Household names, <laughs> lots know. of them. Yes, British Light Entertainment's the start of it, really, wasn't it? Yeah, and it was this... It's where their first chance to go on a stage. Yeah, people like Barry Cry, Tony Hancock. I know. All the goons, apart from Spike. Yes. Did Spike fail? He failed his audition, the silly boy. <laughs> he was silly because he went He went on the, next, on he walks, says something, apologises for coming on fully dressed, and Van Damme said, next. Oh, him. OK. Yeah, no, it was no point in ever trying to sort of make jokes about the girls or the nudity or anything, which he did. So he was dismissed. 
Who else failed? Benny Hill failed an audition. Oh, did he? Yeah, he was never there. Bob Monkhouse failed his audition. Wow. But of course he discovered Peter Sellers. So the, the actual stalwarts of the, of the place were Jimmy Edwards, in terms of comedians, Jimmy yes. Edwards... Arthur English. Yes. Um, and you were saying before Arthur English became a freeman of the theatre? Yes, he made him a freeman of the theatre. He didn't have to keep signing contracts. If he did a show and then he got something, a TV show or something, he just went off and did whatever other work he would do. And then he'd come back. If he had a lull in his life, he'd come back. So he'd be in and out of the windmill two or three times a year, really. Wow. I suppose. Do a show here and a show there. That's fantastic. He did one called Arthur of, Arthur of Arabia, which I remember. It's, okay. <laughs> um, in which silly man, he, he couldn't dance, but he did get, one of the girls was told to try and teach him to do something. So she managed to teach him to do steps to the side because he couldn't quite master the sand dance. <laughs> That was great, glorious. Bruce Forsyth tried oh, to Bruce, teach him. Yeah, yeah. yeah, he tried to teach Arthur to dance, and Arthur ended up with his tap shoes. So they, <laughs> he so kept they, them. Bruce Forsyth and at the same time. They were uh, yes. Okay. Well, he was there sort of so long over so many oh, years. Yeah, yeah, that he was there with loads of us really. But uh, I tell you something else as well. How how strong Van Damme was for on behalf of the girls, because Arthur English one day said he wasn't going to be able to do one show so he wanted it posted in the front that Arthur English would not be appearing today and Van Damme said why who do you think you are do you really think that they've come to see you right they haven't they're coming to see my girls yeah <laughs> they put him in his place they must have been friends though after all oh yes yeah, yeah. yeah but it's it, it wasn't oh yes you're so famous that you you know you're going to have to have tell the audience you're not going to be performing. You don't want that written outside the theatre. Yeah. They haven't come to see you, Arthur. They've come to see the girls. So the comedians knew where they stood. Yeah. <laughs> and Peter Sellers was... I mean, was it literally his first job, Peter Sellers? He'd, he'd failed dismally, I think, in the provinces trying to do working men's clubs. OK. Um, and then he thought, I'll be a drummer. So he came down to London and he went to Archer Street, where our stage door was, and uh, joined the musicians' queues <laughs> to see if anybody wanted a drummer. He didn't get a job, so he walked in the stage door of the Windmill Theatre and uh, asked for an audition and found them hired him. As a comedian? Then. Yeah. And an impressionist and those kind mm. of things. And yes. Which is how you got your job. Not as a comedian. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I did, yes. There I was, walking down Archer Street, and I was... Let's say I was 14 and a half years old, but I was very aware that I was, I thought I was quite chic. If a 14 and a half year old can be sophisticated, I was wearing my little red hat set at a jaunty angle and saw the sign, just said windmill stage door, and I went in, just opened the door, went in, saw Ben, the stage door man, and said, oh, I've come for an audition. And he said, you're very lucky because the old man's in today, and he phoned upstairs so I went upstairs and taken into his office. I thought, what am I going to do if he asked me to sing or dance? Which I could do, but it seemed as strange. You weren't prepared, though, were you? No, I wasn't at all. <laughs> so I stood there and he looked up from his desk and he asked me if I could sing and dance. And I said, yes. And he sort of smiled. It must have been the hat, I think. And he said, he said mm, I like you. I'm going to take a chance on you. And that was the chance. And he sent for Amatel, I suppose. I suppose it was her, I mean, who knew at the time? And the contract was brought up and he signed it and I signed it. And then that's when he found out how old I was. 
because he said to me, um, you'll have to start rehearsals next Wednesday or whatever it was. And I said, oh, I can't, I, I'm, at, I'm still at school. <laughs> <laughs> and to boot, it was um, a convent school with nuns. <laughs> right. <laughs> so he said, well, go home, get your mother to sign this contract um, and come back when you're old enough, but promise you'll come back. And I said, yes, I, I will come back. So how old was old enough in those days? Fifteen, I think. Fifteen, okay. At the windmill, yes. Fourteen and a half was too young to perform there. Nowadays, that would come under kind of child labour laws, wouldn't you need to yeah, have a chaperone? Yeah, but it, was a, it did have nudes, so I suppose there was and a slightly nude, yeah, different that's, yeah, slightly thing, conversation. I was called up to the office one day when I was there. He said, I've had a letter from your mother's superior <laughs> that apparently the um, Sisterhood of St Mary's Convent are not very happy at the publicity that is being produced, saying, oh, convent girl in windmill show. And they always put that it was the... Uh, St Mary's Convent Woodford. He liked that. It was a good piece of publicity for him. So all my publicity said what school I was from. And Mother Superior wasn't very happy. And I agree with her. Okay. It was Yes, I think poor Mother Superior, you know, what do they, they don't know about all this. It's nothing to... I could understand why they were a bit miffed. Reading your account of the day you first went into um, yes. Archer Street, it starts off... I was happened to be in the Two Eyes coffee bar with Mickey Most. Yes, as which, you do. Yeah, as you do, yeah. That's yes. like saying I was on Carnaby Street with Mick Jagger. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. So how, how do you happen to be with Mickey Most in the Two Eyes? Uh, oh, well, I'd already met Mickey and Alex at a party because somebody I knew knew them. Then going to the Two Eyes, as often as I did, you mixed with everybody. They, they were just faces in the Two Eyes coffee bar. So you used to go that you were a regular in there? Yes. Just, um, okay. Yeah, so I was in the Two Eyes and I was talking with Mickey and Alex. There was a windmill girl in there, Perrin Lewis, her name was. So the four of us were talking. I suppose that's what put the word windmill into my head a bit. And then Mickey was going somewhere to go and buy a guitar, so he was heading off somewhere else. But we walked along to the corner of Archer Street in front of the White Horse Pub. And he said, I'm going this way, and I said, I'm going that way. But I knew them. I, I knew quite a lot of people. So everybody went in there. You knew Cliff, all, all of them. The Two Eyes was lovely. Was it? Oh, yes. It was young and vibrant, and it was all happening, remember? Yeah, I mean, it's a really, I mean, really famous place like now. We Willie Harris and all the, the great rock and roll. Absolutely. The start of British rock and roll. There we were, right at the beginning of it, with people who weren't famous at the time. They were known a bit. We knew them, and I think they were known a bit from doing some of the circuits, like the Granada circuits and theatre yeah. circuits and things. Um, but they weren't as famous as they were going to be then. So I mean, that's how I always say Mickey Most took me, put, left me in the right place at the right time. And that's sort of true. I mean, he didn't mean it, obviously. But yes, I knew them. Uh, but you you just knew everybody. So Was he as mean as he... Because no. his reputation on no, was it new no. faces. Well, not this? yes, but that that's As business, actors, isn't it? Isn't it? That's yeah. business. Yeah. Um, no, but he used to he used to serve the coffee to make money in the two eyes. He'd be behind the machine. He was a singing waiter, wasn't he? Or yes. something. Yeah. <laughs> that's funny. Have you we seen? We were all there at the beginning. That's all. <laughs> have you seen Espresso Bongo? Yes. The Cliff film. Is, yes. I mean, that's based on the two eyes, isn't it? It's yes. not actually the two yes. eyes, is it? Is, was, is that at all? Is that if. No. <laughs> no, okay. No, it didn't seem to be like the two eyes to me. Okay. So I've, no. seen, I've seen some footage of the two eyes, and it looks like it was absolutely crammed. It was. Packed. You couldn't dance. You, if you went downstairs where they have the rock and rollers on a sort of two foot platform, <laughs> so if anybody wanted to dance, you couldn't move. So mm. they sort of 
invented the hand jive, so the story goes. Right. But hand jiving in the two eyes, that was a big thing. So maybe it was where it started. Yeah. I know that's the legend anyway. So from one iconic venue to the the next iconic venue. Just five minute walk away. Not bad for a 14 and a half year old, is it really? So your parents were okay with you going to the windmill. How did they react to it? Well, I only had my mother. My parents were separated. She loved it. She absolutely loved the windmill. All the windmill girls who met her and knew her loved her. Mrs. Millard, they used to say. Hello, Mrs. Millard. Oh, hello, my dear. She, She just thought it was all beautiful and lovely and she loved the world. It was something, an escape for her as well, I think. Yeah, it must have been lovely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She, she was fine with it. And, of course, all the girls came and stayed at the house. And we had parties at my house. There was always parties. Oh, really? Yeah, there was always parties going on. So, yeah. Nice. Yes. Um, and uh, during your time as a windmill girl, you dated a film star. Oh, Lee Patterson. <laughs> Don't make more of it than there was. I'm excited by that, though. Of, yeah, dating, isn't that strange? It's like you're his girlfriend. Yeah, yeah. Well, Lee liked me, obviously, but he used to turn up and then take me out to dinner. So he was a Canadian He was Canadian-born. based in London. He, yes. Yeah. He was Canadian-born. We used to go to restaurants and have dinner and things, but I never read into it more than there was. I never sort of thought, this is this, I'm going to marry a movie star or something. Okay. He was Lee, and he was just lovely. He was lovely to me. He was so, a bit of a heartthrob, wasn't he? He was, yeah. apparently. I didn't know when I first met him, I didn't know who he was. I'd never seen him in a film, so it didn't matter to me who he was. He had that market where he was. He played Americans yes. in British films, didn't he? He did, yes. I mean, he did quite well. He did quite a lot. I mean, certainly lots of the films that we talk about on our programme these solo-based films. He, he was in the three the of them, at least, he? yeah. But we we just used to walk around a lot and go and get his soup from the dry cleaners. And <laughs> um, it was it was basically very normal. Right. Um, and I was very young, I suppose, to him. I can't remember how much older he was. It was lovely. I mean, the, the very first date, I, I can remember what I, if you're going to call it a date. Yes, he asked me out, so it was a date. I can remember the dress I was wearing. Okay. You know, with the full petticoats, tiny little nipped-in waists and these great big hooped skirts. Very, very pretty apple blossom dress. Um, and we went to ISO's, Jack of Clubs, and had dinner there with... Um, who were we with? Shirley Bassey. Um, <laughs> Nicky Mo, Shirley Bassey, Barry Cryer. Sorry, <laughs> Barry Cryer. Yeah, the love of my life. Um, yes, uh, Lionel Blair and Joyce, his... his um, Sister. Right. Um, we had a lovely meal there that night. And then we drove around London in a big American car. Don't ask me what it was. And I always felt odd because you're sitting on the wrong side. People would stop and stare because of this big American car. I don't think they knew who he was, but it's a matter. I, I had a lovely was, life, I tell you. Yeah. How old were you? You were 20 when you left, weren't you? The last time I saw him, um, I was 20. And he turned up. There was a no, uh, an announcement over the tannoy that said, Jill, Mr. Patterson at the stage door. So all the other girls tried to sort of go and get a glimpse, but he'd gone into the New Yorker restaurant next door mm. to wait for me. And that was the last time I saw him, because I then told him I was getting married. Oh, really? <laughs> so, yes, so I didn't see him after that. But he, he went to America. But he used to go to America a lot, but he always used to say, well, I'm only a flight away. And I think, yes, but it didn't bother me that he was. I, I didn't think there was anything more to it than that. So Maybe he thought 
there's more to it than you did? I don't know. You know, in retrospect, maybe he did, but he never married, so I don't know. People are always phoning me up saying, oh, put on Talking Pictures, Lee's on. <laughs> I know, I I've seen it pictures, now. I love Talking Pictures, yeah. <laughs> oh, Jill, Jill, Jill. You could have married a film star, lived in Beverly Hills. But then again, if you'd done that, you probably wouldn't have become a fantastic guest on Soho Bites, the world's leading podcast about film set in Soho. So, swings and roundabouts. Thanks to Jill for coming on the show. And in the next episode, we'll hear all about the windmill's final days and beyond. Hello, this is what's known as a mid-roll ad. It's one of those annoying interruptions that's inserted retrospectively at just the wrong point. And the reason for it is that Soho Bikes takes up hours of time every month, and I'm hoping you might be able to support the show. There are two ways you can do this. One is for free, and it's to leave the show a star rating or kind review. You can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash review. Or if you'd like to assist financially to help cover our costs, you can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you very much. Apologies for the interruption and back to the episode. There have been, as far as we at Soho Bites PLC are aware, four films made about the Windmill Theatre. The earliest of these, a glitzy, technicolour Hollywood production made in 1945 starring Rita Hayworth, was called Tonight and Every Night, and we're covering that one in the next episode of Soho Bites. The UK's first bash at a film made about the windmill came out four years later, and this being 1949, with the country still suffering from the effects of war, austerity and rationing, it's a much more humble affair. In fact, the film almost draws attention to its lower budget and less glamorous appeal by including a number called I'll Settle For You, in which Hollywood megastars such as Veronica Lake and Jimmy Stewart are paraded across the windmill stage in the form of vague lookalikes, only to be rejected by the boy-girl singing duo in favour of each other. Written and directed by the prolific Val Guest, who went on to direct the much more polished Soho film Expresso Bongo a decade later, the film opens with a shot of Piccadilly Circus at night and a voiceover. If you can find your way to Piccadilly Circus, it's only a stone's throw from there. Just turn up Shaftesbury Avenue and down the first turning on the left and there it is, nestling away in the corner. That's where I worked for 14 years. It's a long time. I've seen a lot of kids come and go, I have. You ask them, they'll all remember Gimpy, the old stage carpenter. And there's many of them won't forget one Friday night at the mill neither. It all seemed to start with the finale of the last house. And then we're into the opening number, or rather, the closing number, because as our friend Gimpy explained there, this is the finale of that evening's show. As is the case with all the musical numbers in the film, we're treated to the whole shebang. Set, lights, orchestra, costumes, and a full quota of windmill girls and boys giving it their all. But then, when the punters have left and the cleaners are sweeping up in the auditorium... Any diamond tiaras, pearls or rubies? What do you think? One pipe, one umbrella, and a pair of kippers. These are hard times. Here, somebody better wake up Rip Van Winkle. Well, for heaven's sake. Better get him up before the governor sees him. Why? Why? He only wants the old man to hear a customer step through the show and have them all here rehearsing at dawn. 
Well, if he slept through a windmill show, he must be very tired. Or very old. Excuse me, sir. The show's over, sir. Boy, he's really weary. You'd think he'd done six shows. Maybe he has. You really must wake up, sir. Your ticket doesn't include bed and breakfast. <gasps> the body of a man, seated in the middle of the front row, slumps to the floor. Scotland Yard are informed and very soon Detective Inspector Matthews, played by Gary Marsh, and his sergeant, played by a 30-year-old John Pertwee, arrive and diligently go about their work. Sir, he was shot from the stage. But that's nonsense, Inspector. Furthermore, it's a very serious statement to make about my company. Now look, Mr Van Dam, murder isn't a pleasant thing at the best of times, but you can be quite sure that we people don't make statements unless we're pretty sure of our facts. Now, I am the murdered man. I get a bullet through my heart, which goes into the back of the seat. There is only one place it could have been fired from, the stage. But, my dear sir, you seem to forget a show was taking place on the stage at the time. And you seem to forget there were at least 50 people in this theatre, apart from the audience, any one of whom might have fired the shot. The film was shot mostly on location at the windmill, and many of the performers are actual members of the windmill company, including the stage manager, Johnny, who was played quite well, in fact, by the actual windmill stage manager, Johnny Gale. The comedian, Jimmy Edwards, who was already well known from his regular appearances in the BBC Light programme in Take It From Here, also does a turn playing himself. But the windmill producer, Vivian Van Damme, is not played by Vivian Van Damme because Vivian Van Damme failed the audition to play Vivian Van Damme. He is instead played by Jack Livesey. This apparently caused Van Damme some annoyance, as did the decision of the production company to take nearly all the furniture and fittings out of his office in order to recreate it at Nettlefold Studios in Walton-on-Thames. It's thought, though, that Van Damme was otherwise well disposed towards the film, which cannot be said of his feelings towards Tonight and Every Night, which he apparently disliked. Murder at the Windmill was the first film produced by Nat Cohen, who went on to make many more movies over his long life, some good and some not so good, but usually on quite a tight budget. He did eventually go on to become incredibly wealthy and in the 1970s was the most powerful person in the UK film industry. The director Alan Parker described Cohen as a vulgar man who was more like a Soho strip club spiv than a film mogul, although I'm not entirely sure how you draw that distinction. In the US, Murder at the Windmill was released under a different, quite inappropriate title, which is something that my second guest, Dr. Ellen Wright, explained to me, among other things, when I spoke to her on a glitchy Skype connection a couple of weeks ago. Dr. Ellen Wright, Senior Lecturer in Cinema and TV History at De Montfort University. Welcome to Soho Bites. Hello. And <laughs> Thank you uh, cheese enthusiast. Sorry, I forgot to say cheese enthusiast. <laughs> I'll include the yeah. cheese in the in the show notes if people want to know about the cheese. <laughs> it's not necessarily my finest hour. <laughs> well, I don't know. I've, I mean, I, I bought a cheese plane on the strength of having seen the. Uh, was it your last episode? You talked about cheese planes. I think basically what that that cheese vlog is doing is charting my slow descent into madness. Yeah. As, uh, <laughs> as we're locked in at home, my partner and I. So. It does feel like a lockdown thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, I emailed you yesterday because I watched the film again. Murder yeah. of the Windmill a couple of nights ago. And the first time I watched it, which is maybe a year ago, oh, well, I was perplexed, really, because I, I was expecting, I think, like a noir or something. And actually, it's this sort of flimsy, inconsequential... It's not even a mystery, is it? I mean... No. <laughs> and I was worried that we'd have nothing to talk to, So, but you assured me that you've got lots to say about it. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, it's, like you say, it is really quite a flimsy plot. It's basically an excuse to uh, show the safer elements 
of um, of a windmill show, you know, and sort of one of the selling points of the film is that it, you know, it's it's shot in the windmill space, so you get a sense of the windmill space as well. And you know, it's a black and white film, and then you sort of you compare the depiction of the windmill in that to the depiction of the windmill in, say, Tonight and Every Night, and it's a very different affair. You know, it does seem very austere and and almost claustrophobic you know but you know in all sorts of ways it's more believable than the tonight and every night depiction it was shot at the windmill wasn't it lots of it, it was yeah absolutely absolutely so see that that's a really interesting artifact as a historian you know at least there i can see that and think okay well i get an idea now of how the space actually worked it's nice to have though that idea you know to be able to see that but i mean i think i would say as well there's something about the fact that it is a bit it's a bit it's a bit naff you know there's the 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 the, the awful scene where the guy gets pulled in on a movable organ by the... oh that is superb <laughs> you're just like that's so crap that's just so rubbish isn't it and so very in many ways so very british oh, yeah. and that, you know i just think as well there's something about the slight rubbishness that, you know, this is a, 90, you know, it's 1949 that this is released. We're, we're still in austerity. This is austerity Britain. We're still recovering from the war. They're still rationing. It's a very, very grey and dismal place to be in Britain and in all sorts of ways. What you're seeing here is an attempt to bring some jollity, you know, and, and it's quite hard to do when there's, you know, they're still rationing, so on and so forth, you know. So actually, you know, it. I, I do find that actually quite interesting in, in all sorts of ways because of its slight rubbishness, you know. Do you want to just give me a quick, if you can spin it out to 30 seconds, a 30-second <laughs> plot yeah. summary and uh, a setup of where we are? Yeah, basically, you get introduced to the windmill. There's a lovely little uh, voiceover at the beginning from Gimpy, the stage manager at, uh, at the windmill, uh, saying, you know, if you're in Piccadilly, you want to drop into the windmill. It's a famous spot, you know, and setting up the notoriety of the windmill and you get some lovely shots of the city looking all cosmopolitan but a little bit broken we then move into the windmill space and basically we, we see the end of a, a windmill show the girls cleaning up after the show and all of a sudden shock horror there's a body found in the theater the police are called in and they decide the best way to determine where this guy has been shot from is to basically run the show back and so we get to see snippets of the show and, you know, eventually they solve the mystery. Uh, you know, you think, how, how would people not have noticed there was a dead body sat next to him? quite yeah. badly? Uh, Certainly in the front row, you know. I know. <laughs> the idea that you have to run the whole show with full <laughs> lights and costume and smiling as well, doing the, you know. Yeah. The yeah. whole grinning for the, the camera. The full costumes, everything. I will just say, actually, I find this really interesting that the guy sat in the front row, bearing in mind so much anecdotal evidence exists that the front seats were the most coveted ones because you could see the best view of the girls. Yeah. You, know, you have this idea of what they call the windmill steeplechase, where at the end of each show... Perfectly respectable people would just clamber over the seats to get nearer to the front of the stage so they would get a better view in the next circulation of the show yeah. of the girls with no clothes on. I, you know, I can't imagine that uh, he sits there for particularly long without people saying, come on, mate, it's my turn now. He bought a ticket at 10 o'clock. Right. Um, so he would have had to go at the back, yeah. I would have thought, yeah. and then sort of clamber forward. How way forward. got to the front? Yeah. yeah. 
Very See, we're already finding flaws in the plot here. I I'm am, only, I'm only yeah. a few minutes into the podcast. <laughs> um, and, I, and I also, I, I did. I think I read somewhere, was it in Van Damme's book, that um, Kenneth Moore used to work there as a stagehand yeah. back in the day. And one of his early jobs was rebolting the seats to the floor yeah. And yeah. because, because <laughs> of the, the steeplechase that he mentioned. Yeah. yeah. I, mean, I think it's uh, that, that, um, that opening number... Because it starts with the very end of the show. It I quite does, like that. Yeah. I think it's quite good, that military one. It's quite impressive. Yeah. You could see how that would look quite an impressive number in Austerity Britain compared to sooty, smoky <laughs> London outside. Yeah, There's pretty yeah. girls with colourful costumes. And when I watched it recently, I did feel slightly warmer to it compared to the first time. Because I think so, I knew what I was, what I was going to get this time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, I wasn't going to get this gritty kind of collars turned up, fag smoking noir. And uh, I think it's done quite affectionately. And yeah. it, the thing that impresses me, one of the reasons I'm so I'm so interested in the windmill, is because Van Damme was such a showman. He yeah. he wouldn't quit. He you know every opportunity to sell that theatre, he took it. He, he's really impressive. Very very impressive man. Um, a few years ago, I went to the BBC archive, you know, looking at the negotiations that went on between the windmill and the BBC at various points. And at various points, Van Damme's trying to pitch all manner of stuff to the BBC, you know, because he, he just he, he knows that publicity is the fuel that the, the theatre needs. You know, there's some lovely bits of uh, documentation in there about the first programme that the BBC broadcasts after the Second World War when BBC returns is a showcase um uh, routine featuring the windmill girls they're the first thing you see when you uh, when you turn on the bbc for the first time post-war you know they're a british institution on the radio presumably yeah no i mean on, on bbc television when, oh, when, right, they, okay. they, when they broadcast television for the first time the first thing you see is the windmill girls he made the windmill girls a british institution because they were yeah. embedded in all media they're a real multimedia phenomenon it's absolutely fascinating to see um, the way that the you know the the, the brand was spread around uh, British and American popular culture. Were they seen to be wholesome and and all that kind of stuff? Because the thing is, they are on stage naked, and yeah. men did go there. Presumably, they had their coats on their laps and whatever. <laughs> did, so, did it have a? I find it difficult to imagine what how it was seen in wider culture. Not as filth, is it? It's, no, I mean, it's not. It's I not know. seen as seedy, but neither is it seen as a kind of jolly end of the pier for all the family it's somewhere in between isn't it yeah well i mean it's situated in that tradition of sort of end of pier and that's something that henderson when she was alive and van damme worked to utilize because there's discourse in the 1930s when the cinema emerges around this idea of american cinema coming in and ruining british music hall traditions so um they're set up as being this plucky underdog trying to defend a british tradition in the early 30s and they sort of play on that Previously, I have spoken to Jill Millard Shapiro as well, and I've asked her, you know, were you seen to be some sort of strumpet, you know, for working at the, the windmill? And she says, you know, she's she's emphatic, absolutely not. No, I was not a strumpet at all. People thought of it as being a little bit cheeky and a little bit saucy, but people knew, essentially, you got a slightly cheeky entertainment. It wasn't sordid. Certainly bear in mind as well that what's also on offer at the same sort of time, you know, certainly in the, in the 60s, as the windmill, the thing that did for the windmill, that ruined for the windmill, was the emergence of various private clubs in London that could offer 
moving nudity that offered American striptease that was much more lascivious, much more, you know, sort of in amongst the audience in the clubs as well, you know. So the women was very much seen as being sort of, it was almost sort of twee, but people loved it for its tweeness. It was an adult entertainment, but it was it was almost sweet in all sorts of ways, you know, with a little bit of sauce to it. Jill was saying that even when she started in the late 50s, they were aware that what they were doing was this very, was out of date. Yeah. Boys in blazers with straw boaters and girls in pretty dresses and that kind of thing. So she doesn't really get the sense that they were pushed out by the swinging 60s or the changing time. She, she feels it was more like it was having its day. It was, it was always, yeah. it, was all, it, it would have to change to adapt to the modern times and they weren't going to do that so we just had to close it's, it's really interesting that you know not that long after the cinema closes then obviously you know sort of regulations shift a little bit further again and you just think oh maybe if they'd have just hung on but then again you know they offered a unique product and why would you change that that dilutes what the the original product was and did it really want to become some sort of strip club and um, um, you know that would be a real shame i think Jill said uh, in the last episode, she said um, she always says to people that they were already naked when they went on. Yeah, they which were. Is not, yeah. <laughs> not much of a striptease if uh, <laughs> you're in the buff. Well, there's something really important here around the idea of um, it's the it's the regulation shapes the form in all sorts of ways. Um, if you look at the discourse in the newspapers around the disgust around American burlesque coming into London, infiltrating London, the disgust is located around the movement, the visceral movements of the women, the way that they thrust and shake. So what are we talking about here? In, so we're talking about late 50s, early 60s, as we get panic around American burlesque. You know, The panic's about the movement. It's lewd. It's disgusting. What are they doing? That sort of an idea. You know, and, and that's absolutely not what the windmill girls are doing. You know, they are serene and beautiful, you know, and works of art. You know, they're to be stared at. They're not offering themselves up in the way that these American, these crude American performers are. You know, it's a very different thing. In the film, the nearest we get to the tableau vivants is yeah. that number called... Um, I'll, oh, is it I'll Stick With I'll, You? I'll, I'll Settle For You. That's, I'll Settle For You. Um, yeah, and yes. they do have the, the tableaus in that. Covered up tableaus, yeah, obviously. Yeah. And I think that's... That is kind of what it was like, wasn't it? The Because uh, it was behind gauze and that kind of thing. And, um, and that, But that alludes yeah. to the whole American influx as well with all the film stars. I guess in all sorts of ways. I think, you know, it's looking at the um, the programmes for the, the windmill, because I'm very sad and I've bought all of this nonsense. You know, I've got, like, all the old programmes and what have you. You know, looking at the programmes, you can see, you know, sort of you get a feel for what each routine might have been and also if you go to the V&A again they've got a lovely archive there the windmill archive there and you get a sense again from various production notes and what have you what the routines are and I think there is an element of American influence in there like you say you know sort of um, within the routines there is a, a sort of an American flavour creeping in and like you say you know you've got the American star in there is it Diana Decker isn't it she's uh, yeah born in a... who is annoying <laughs> that screwball yeah, I mean... thing that she's oh yeah, I mean, I, d I don't mind the Juliet routine. I think that's that's quite yeah. amusing. But all the backstage stuff is just way too contrived yeah. and becomes very wearisome very quickly. <laughs> I just think, how did all the other girls in such a small space not clock her one, quite frankly? I know. And the, and the girl who's constantly <laughs> burst into tears. 
<laughs> this pair of them, pack them off together. <laughs> Should we talk about performances a bit? Because that, that, that's the... Um, I wasn't really aware of any of the people in the cast, apart from John Pertwee. Oh, Gary Marsh, I knew a little bit. Of, yeah, you know, him. yeah. I mean, to um, be honest, I'm not massively familiar with many people other than, uh, like you say, Gary Marsh, John Pertwee. They've got... Um, what's his name? Jimmy Ed... Yeah, Jimmy Edwards, you know, sort of doing his, his awful comedy routine. Tiresome routine, um, yeah. But he's supposed to be rubbish, <laughs> isn't it? He's kind of... That's the kind of the gag is like this isn't funny at all. Yeah, it just does him such a disservice. Yeah. John Pertwee really hams it up. He does that yeah. all that kind of gurning and uh, yeah. you know about the girls. I just there's a, there's a scene at the end where everything's been resolved and the chief inspector <laughs> is in the audience and, he's, and he and he spots John Pertwee kind of with a, this uh, expression yeah. in his face. I don't know how to translate that to a listening audience, but um, it's, it's an interesting sort of tone to the piece. You know, you have the sort of more serious bits but they are trying to be funny throughout but it, it just doesn't always it's home <laughs> yeah and they do that all, all that kind of there is little kind of references to um oh the tableau oh i'll watch this bit yeah absolutely like you said there's various references it's never actually said what the girls do it's just implied that something fruity happens at the at the cinema at the theater sorry you know that's true yeah they don't actually say anything do they? no about, they don't um, no no absolutely not no <laughs> have you seen um secrets of a windmill girl <laughs> yes yeah um it, i mean that's a, that's an interesting film i've only seen it once i, I become less interested in the windmill towards the end, I'm not going to lie. And I think, I seem to remember actually that Secrets of a Windmill Girl is made shortly after the windmill closes. It was, yeah. Adrian Smith does a fantastic piece of academic work on Secrets of a Windmill Girl that's really, really interesting, interesting work. So I sort of, I left that be, you know, because he'd sort of covered uh, that area. But, you know, it's exploitation yeah I mean we had Adrian on talking about actually that really yeah okay, I mean this yeah. would this would be the fourth when, when I've done um tonight and every night that'll be all four windmill films done I think that's all I think there's only four I, I can't I don't know of any others but um if you do let me know because um no, I'm trying to think no, no I don't think so to be honest the way that the windmill is referred to and alluded to in that film is very different from both of the other two yeah yeah in a secrets of windmill girl the idea is that if if you go to the windmill you've kind you're kind of a fallen girl or yeah. it's certainly at the start of a path to being a fallen girl yeah but this film is what 17 years before and it's mm. completely different it's, it's all about um cheeky friendly yeah you know that family you know the thing that comes through in this film that you know that is a, a selling point for it is a positive is that sense of family i find it very hard to believe that anyone would be able to get away with having a drug problem working at the windmill quite frankly yeah because you, you know, know about it wouldn't you yeah you know van damme was a real paternal figure you know he, he, he you know the thing that comes through very strongly when you talk to jill is how um how he looked at how you were looked after you were part of the family you know when you joined the windmill um so i find that very hard to believe that anybody would develop some sort of drug problem because i think everybody was in and out of each other's lives and you're working um, six days a week yeah absolutely absolutely where are you gonna get the chance to have a drug problem I know, yeah. <laughs> so the, the film took um it went to america obviously but it did, was yeah. released under a different title it did yeah so that? 
it shifts from murder at the windmill you know you've got windmill in the title to draw the british market basically you know because the it's an instantly recognizable term it's been in all the popular news magazines it's been on newsreels on the radio you know people know the windmill people don't know the windmill in america um you know tonight and every night even though it's clearly about the windmill and that really really goes vivian van damme they changed the theater name to the music box so you know the name is not you know mentioned there you know there's no cultural currency so they changed the title of the film to mystery at the burlesque so you know immediately we've got a massive problem there you know i've had a conversation with jill millard shapiro about this this idea of burlesque was the windmill offering burlesque and uh, and she's very insistent this is not burlesque burlesque is american burlesque um is doing very different things to what we offered at the windmill this was a british tradition so this is really problematic that they're calling it burlesque but it's what american audiences will recognize so they, they pop that into the title to try and draw audiences in if you look at the promotional materials i've got this beautiful set of color lobby cards and you can see they're implying that you know this is about semi-nude girls look at the dancing girls you know there's a little bit of murder for an extra frisson of excitement you know shots of girls you know they're all sort of sitting around in their pajamas and dressing gowns and what have you you know sort of offering this tantalizing taste of backstage life and these and these uh, lobby cards are all in color as well so you know when you finally get to watch the film it's black and white and it's so nowhere near the sun. well this is the thing but it doesn't matter does it you know when you when you put out a lobby card lobby cards are designed to sit in cinema lobbies so you know people pay their money and as soon as you've got their money, it doesn't matter. You could be selling them absolute rubbish. You've got their money. Yeah. <laughs> you paid to see the film. And do you know how it was received in America? Or do you know how it was received in the UK, actually? To be honest, um, there's very little that I can find about it. The impression I get is that it, it just sort of it was very run-of-the-mill and was seen of being, as being run-of-the-mill by critics at the time. Well, see, it was, you know, still 1949, you know, cinema was still a run-of-the-mill experience. You know, you you had a lot of run-of-the-mill, very safe stuff. That's what people did of their evenings as opposed to watching the television, you know. They, they yeah. watched very run-of-the-mill films. There's lots of films around that time where they just seem to go from one static set to another static set, maybe yeah. with a sort of linking shot of a street. Yeah. But it's clear, often I just think it's the same room or set, just redressed yeah. slightly. Yeah, absolutely. It's a cost thing. You know, British cinema um, just doesn't have the budgets that American, you know, it, it, it never has. Even though cinema has a real resurgence during the Second World War, British cinema, and there are various protectionist measures prior to the, the Second World War undertaken by like, the government to ensure that, you know, sort of the American product doesn't stamp out British cinema, the unique, unique quality of British cinema. You know, the, the, the budgets are still much lower. You know, there's there's constant debate if you look through the trade press around how are we going to um, create our own sex bomb, our own British sex bomb that can compete with people like Rita Hayworth, you know, because there's just not the budgets, there's just not the funds. You know, the sets are a bit shitty. You know, the, the, uh, the characters are a little bit rubbish. You know, it's that is the nature of British film. You know, it's in all its slightly rubbish glory you know if you look at the american press book for murder at the burlesque 
So a press book is essentially the thing that's sent out to a cinema before the film is shown, just a few days in advance of the film turning up at the cinema space, the cinema owner will get a copy of the press book. And basically it gives you lots of tips and tricks as to how to market your film in your cinema to guarantee the best audience. Bearing in mind, this is an American press book. So there's a lovely little article that you, you're being instructed that maybe you could place in the newspaper. Um, two that particularly leap out at me. One that's, that says um, 910,000 American GIs visit the windmill and it offers the history or, you know, sort of talks a little bit about, you know, this is why you should be interested in the windmill because it's actually a British institution. I know, you know, we're here in America and this is a, you know, it's a British film and it's black and white and it's a little bit rubbish, but you should be interested in this film because all of these GIs went to this cinema during the Second World War and this is why it's a British institution. So they're trying to sort of market that, again, that windmill myth again to the American audiences. But the other uh, article that really interests me is... Um, an article called Plenty of Food for the Film Cast. Basically, it's an article saying, even though in Britain there's rationing still, the budget for this film was so fantastic that all of the actresses and actors had something to eat. <laughs> oh, my word. Yeah, yeah. And it's such a telling little article because it tells you so much about the situation that we're in in Britain why would an American audience give a monkeys about that? You know, they're not dealing with anywhere near the level of um, of issues that Britain are dealing with at that time. You know, the rationing is not an issue for American audiences anymore. But it just goes to show, you know, they're trying to create this glamorous dream product about this amazing, you know, theatre space. And one of the basic concerns is can we feed the actors and actresses? I think describing Murder at the Windmill as a glamorous dream product may be pushing it a bit, but I have to say, having now watched it three times, I actually really like it. And if it showed up on Talking Pictures one day, I'd recommend it. So there. I think the trick is to go in with low expectations. Thank you to Dr. Ellen Wright of De Montfort University for coming on the show. And if you were confused by the references to cheese at the start of that, it's because she has a vlog on YouTube called Fun with Fromage, in which she and her attractive assistant review different types of cheese. It's very entertaining and has quickly become my favourite cheese review vlog. Murder at the Windmill is available in full on YouTube at the moment, and I've included a link to it on the show notes for this episode at SohoBitesPodcast.com as well as links to Ellen's Twitter feed from where she tweets as at Dr. Smut and, of course, one to Fun With Fromage. Don't miss it. And thanks again, of course, to Jill Millard-Shapiro. I've included various treats on the show notes about Jill, including details of where to buy a copy of her book, Remembering Reviewdeville. In the next episode, we'll have the last instalment of my conversation with Jill, and the film chat is our last one about the windmill. I'll be discussing tonight and every night with the legendary podcaster and friend of the show, Adam Roach. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Soho Bites on your favourite podcast provider. There's a handy subscribe button at SohoBitesPodcast.com. And if you have time to leave a nice review, that would be very much appreciated. I'm always keen to hear suggestions for Soho-related features or films to talk about. And you can tweet the show with your ideas on at BitesSoho or email us on SohoBitesPodcast at gmail.com. Soho Bites produced by me, Dom DeLaghi, and is based on an original idea by Dr. Jingan Young. You can follow Jingan and her new research project on Twitter on at Cities in Cinema. Until next time, look after yourselves and bye for now. Hey.